0: And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into 150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM.
1: Well, welcome back to another episode of the Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix, and we have a terrific show on tap for you today. Marv Albert, the Basketball Hall of Famer, the longtime NBA voice of TNT, NBC, of course, all his years with the New York Knicks. He joins me in studio, and we take a long look through one of the most decorated careers in sports broadcasting quick housekeeping note if you like this podcast very easy way to support it head over to apple podcast post a comment leave a rating it's simple it's the best way to make sure we keep doing this podcast week after week that's it all right let's go well marv albert has broadcasted Bowls, stanley cup finals he has worked championship tennis even i believe a couple of world series but most people know him as the voice of the nba for the last three decades first with nbc and now with TNT, and he's kind enough to join me here in studio for the podcast, Marv. I know we've been talking about doing this for. It Couple seems of like times. it seems yes. like since I saw you in Rio at the Olympics last year, we've been discussing uh, getting you here in studio. So thanks for coming in. It's a, it's a pleasure,
2: Chris. I know. Yeah, in Rio, I lo- I actually lost my voice for a day yeah. or two, which actually might have been more interesting for the for the podcast. But uh, no, I'm glad I'm able to finally uh,
1: finally do it. You've been
2: crazy. Season, we've had more games than ever because they uh, on TNT because they expanded the schedule. Oh, no question.
1: You, um, you mentioned that. I, you were, what, I don't know what the word is, concerned about your voice at all times. Is that fair to say that you know, when, you're, when you see your schedule coming up, I mean, what, what's your, your preparation like just to, to care for the voice? Well, I, I must say when I work with people like
2: Mike Pratello, the czar, I would always tell them I can't talk, so I would not have to go to dinner with him. But I I do watch it very carefully because I I find, and this is years ago this happened too, if I'm in a uh, loud restaurant at night before the game or if uh, I'm talking too much, and I I must say I never yelled at my kids. I I mean, all I had to do was give a look to them. So that was was good, and their mother took care of the rest. But I do uh, lose my voice if I'm talking too much. Mm -hmm. So this This is fine because I don't have a game for a while. Mm-hmm. I, you know so this is uh, this is okay, but I, I know other announcers and actors and actresses have the same concern, particularly s- singers. I won't put myself in that category, but uh, I, I find I have to be very careful and uh, fortunately have a very good throat doctor who uh, sees me every so often. so yeah, so one of the perils of doing. Uh, you know, games that take two and a half, three hours on a regular basis.
1: You got started in this business, Marv, in the early 1960s, right? I mean... Kind of, yeah. Well, full-time in the
2: mid-1960s, but I started out because I had gotten to know Marty Glickman, who was the voice of every sport in New York City and was the uh, voice of the Knicks and uh, the Giants football. You know, some of your older uh, fans would be more aware of marty but uh he he was just a great announcer and i got to know him because i was a ball boy for the knicks at one point and uh then ended up keeping statistics for marty and i was at syracuse and then uh for three years and he offered me a job as his writer he was at cbs radio wcbs radio locally in new york and was doing uh, regular sports shows and was doing the games on, on CBS, so I would be his writer and backup announcer. I had been doing sports probably from the third grade on via my tape recorder off television sets, but um, I had worked in Syracuse as a rock and roll disc jockey, although I always wanted to be a sportscaster from the third grade on. And Marty had heard my tapes, and I'd gotten to know him pretty well. He was like a second father to me. So. Uh, back to your question yes in the early 60s while i was finishing up school at nyu i actually did my first nick and ranger games because uh, of conflicts that marty had and the rangers announcer at the time jim gordon had so uh it was at a very early stage and i listened to some of these tapes and i say how did they put
1: me on the air just to uh, go back to that It was that Marty was stuck in a snowstorm, I believe I read. Was he in Paris or something? I was reading an SI story about this from from the early 1990s on you and your family. And and you were at the Boston Garden? Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, Marty also did harness racing at Yonkers Raceway and was on harness racing business in Paris. And it was a snowstorm, although I still feel, and I used to tell him and he would deny it, that on purpose... He said he couldn't get back, so I would get an opportunity. Uh, the Knicks played the Celtics in Boston. It was a uh, just a ferocious snowstorm uh, in the East, so I went up at the last minute on an all-night train ride with my brother Al, who uh, also was a broadcaster. And you know, later on, uh, he was my statistician, and we you know stayed over for three hours at a hotel in Boston and then had to prove to the people at the press gate that we were actually doing the game. I was I was like 19, 20 yeah. years old and did not look like I was the broadcaster, but I took my commercials out of the briefcase to try and prove it, and they finally uh, did let me in. And uh, the Knicks were pretty pretty bad at that time, mm-hmm. too, I should say. And uh, the Celtics were very good, which is not a surprise. so it was it was a route, but uh, you know what a thrill to do it, particularly at the Boston Garden, which had one of the greatest broadcast booth uh, I would say you know in terms of vantage point uh, in the history of the
1: NBA. That was right there on the on the floor right Where... no we're
2: actually on a, on a uh, uh, over the floor. Okay. It, it was similar uh, to the old Madison Square Garden, where I started, uh, had the same thing. Also, it was very, but it was like uh, 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 very, very close to the uh, to the floor or to the ice in terms
1: of hockey. I don't think people realize just how big a hellhole the old Boston Garden was. I mean, I grew up in Boston. I went there a lot as a kid, and I remember having some of the obstructed view seats. I yes. remember it being like a thousand degrees <laughs> in there. For I, I mean, in the old stories of players and what they had to deal with in that. That god awful of visiting locker room. How many stories over the years did you hear from players and and what happened in Boston?
2: Oh, I spent time in the locker room because when we, when I eventually ended up doing the Knicks on a regular basis, we'd always use uh, we we'd be in the locker room to leave our coats and our luggage or whatever. It was the old Red Arrowback. Uh, Red was responsible for making certain that the visiting locker room had either very hot, scorching showers or very or ice cold. It was not a Pleasant place to be. Lockers were very small. It was, I don't think the cleaning crew dealt with the visiting locker room. And it's funny, I got to know Red very well over the years because he was very close to Marty. They're both Brooklyn guys, mm-hmm. as I am, and uh, he he was just, you know, wonderful to talk to. And uh, I, I think uh, the book by John Feinstein mm-hmm. uh, that really captured, yep. yeah, I read that. Uh, his, yeah. you know, he had a group of friends he'd meet up with every week. Mm-hmm. He had great stories, but if you were a visitor, uh, in terms of being a, a visiting team, it was not a pleasant experience. In fact, the Lakers, for one of the uh, finals, uh, Pat Riley had them dressed back at the hotel, so they wouldn't have to deal with the locker room. And they came—I remember—they came off the bus, and they were fully dressed, had their own soap with them. You know if. And this is what – this was like Pat Riley's strategy. He knew in advance he better – to make things a little bit more pleasant for the Lakers.
1: See, and, and I always wondered about whether the the red hour stuff with the showers, whether it was real or whether it was kind of a wives tale, because I was a ball boy too with the Celtics. You were. I was uh, for about eight years. Uh but what, it was, what the, era was uh, that? ML car um and, okay. and ninety five, ninety basically right. ninety five, when when they were really bad just when they moved into the new building. And I was actually the visiting locker room guy. Like I worked the visiting locker room right. about six years there. And I would I would always kind of ask some of the older guys, like, did yeah. this and they weren't that much older, but like did this really happen? Because I never saw that in the new building. Um I, I assume that was more of a red hour back thing in the old building. It was.
2: The the new building is better, not sensational when you see locker rooms sure. in other other cities. But yeah. that it was Actually, I started as a visiting ball boy and then worked myself up. What a great ball boy discussion. I, this I, is, I, I thought but, the visiting mo- with more money in it there, Marv. I mean, right, I had a little
1: cash there in the you back You are and, correct. Yeah. That's right. And, I lived on college off that money.
2: And, and sometimes, you were getting good tips then, mm-hmm. as sometimes the coach would let you stay when he'd be doing his pregame whatever. Things were not as involved as they are now. It's mm-hmm. completely different. I mean, it was really... There was no such thing as an assistant coach in the earlier days, and it was just the head coach uh, primarily. And there were even player coaches, which is hard to fathom now. But the best thing about being a ball boy is we would be able to come early to Madison Square Garden or way back at the 69th Regiment Armory where the Knicks would play some games when the circus was in town, and we could play ball on mm-hmm. the court. What a thrill that was, you know, with the glass backboards, et cetera. So that was... That was a lot of fun. I
1: did that too with the um, at the well. It was the same parquet that they had at the, the, oh, the that's, fleet that's center, that's the city guard. And I yes. used to come at like two o'clock in the afternoon on a game day and play five on five with the uh, the other ball boys. Was that your was, dribble affected by
2: the dead spots on the?
1: floor? I looked for it. I didn't. Uh, no? Maybe it's because I wasn't all that good, so yeah. it, it didn't uh, didn't play into it. But uh, your relationship with Red over the years. I mean, from your perspective, what made him such a basketball genius? You've been around Phil Jackson. You've been around all the greats. What what separated Red? I think. Uh, although
2: on a more simplified basis, it's very similar to how well Steve Kerr has done with Golden State, except things now are certainly at a different level in terms of setting up plays and uh, with analytics, but they were so great with people, Mm -hmm. and they both had a terrific sense of humor. I mean, Red didn't show it to outsiders, but he was very funny. Mm -hmm. And uh, the players appreciated the way he handled them. St- with Steve, it's the same. And Steve had no coaching experience. Mm-hmm. And, but he stepped. He, he was with me for four years at Turner doing color, and he was terrific. And then he was general manager of the Suns and did very well. They went to the Western Conference finals, and then he left and came back. Uh, we told him we were keeping the seat warm. And uh, then he got the job with Golden State, and you know, people questioning, hey, he has no experience. Although they respected him as a player, but he hadn't coached. But he, under the say tutelage, or he, he was very close with uh, Greg Popovich and Phil Jackson. And you know, he was a guy who who really uh, studied quite a bit and had the experience in terms of dealing with people. Is nobody likes Steve? I mean, mm-hmm. he's so well liked, and he's, but he's also uh, you know, so smart, just the way he handles things. So I, I think there was a lot of that in Red in a different way, sometimes more gruff, but I think that's part of it. And he, like Steve, had the players. Mm-hmm. And, and also Red was ahead of his time in terms of, you know, it used to be you would scout players through Street and Smith's college basketball yearbook. There was very little scouting, but Red had people all over the country. He had contacts. And so he was able to find and knew the greatness of Bill Russell. I mean, you know, Bill Russell wasn't seen on television. There weren't scouts going to see him. And he made the trade involving easy Ed Mm -hmm. McCauley, et cetera, Cliff Hagan. But I think that was was part of it. You could be ahead of the game if you had the right contacts. And you look at somebody. They were lucky with a coin flip. They got Bob Cousy. This is going way back because the league was still in its uh, formative stage. But I think the way he put his team together also had a lot to do with it. He was so far ahead of other teams
1: in the NBA. There's a, uh, a church and state feeling with, with media and teams now um, where there's almost a big wall. But it, it wasn't like that early on in your no. career, was it? You were, there was a lot of interaction.
2: Yeah. In fact, you had a situation where you had, and as you know, journalism was so different.
1: Uh, in every sport,
2: and you had writers who were very close to the coach and to some of the players. I mean, I remember when uh, the the Knicks, the, the great Knicks teams, of, you know, sixty nine seventy, the two championship teams, and then seventy two seventy three. You had writers who were very close to Red Holzman. So as a result, you you didn't have the kind of coverage that you have. Today, where Red would tell people things, and it happened in baseball and hockey also, and in football, and it would not be printed. Today, it's incredibly different, certainly with social media now. But even prior to social media in the 70s, in the 80s, and the 90s, you know, they became a little, uh, let's see, wary of. Of things being getting out so that that changed but you know like Red Holzman for example uh, would play cards with the writers mm-hmm. and would go to dinner with the writers you just don't see that anymore it's more protective now mm-hmm. in, 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 in every way so uh, that was the major difference I mean the writers went on the charters you, you do not see that I mean the broadcasters usually went on the charters mm-hmm. but the writers did did not mm-hmm. so it was really separation
1: have you uh, ever gone back and listened to that nineteen? Was it sixty uh, Celtic uh, Nick game? Your uh, fill in yeah. debut?
2: You know, I heard the tape a long time ago, and it was a, yeah, it was a, a different sound. But when I was first starting out in broadcasting, because I was around Marty Glickman so frequently, I was I was talking like him. Even I'd answer the phone at home, like Marty had a very distinctive way about him, and uh, I think I got my parents crazy with. With that. I mean, I, I didn't even realize I was doing it. And then the most important thing for a young broadcaster is to develop his own style. I mean, I was influenced by the fact that he really set the geography of the court. And I started out primarily doing radio, and he was mostly on radio. And you always knew where the ball was, or in hockey, where, where the puck was. And it was important to get Uh, you know, those particular geographical areas, correct. It's on the right sideline. It's uh, along the baseline. It's what kind of shot is it? Is it a a running one-hander? Is it a jump shot from 20? Is is, is he cutting to his left? Is it a backdoor pass on the bounce? I mean, this is more radio than TV, and in TV you pull back, I feel. You should pull back. I, I mean, you see quite a bit of it, but you don't have to talk as much, and you're also setting up the color man particularly in basketball. Hockey is more of a, uh, a play-by-play sport because it's so fast and there's so few uh, commercial breaks. But that's what I gained from being around Marty Glickman as much as I, I was because uh, it, just in sitting with him and watching him capture the game i i th- I thought there was no one like him at that time
1: in coming up as you said, with your own style, is it just trial and error as you're going through um you know the, these jobs and or are you trying you working on stuff at home at the same time i mean how are you how are you formulating that that personal style? It,
2: it's a bit of trial and error, and I used to listen to every possible broadcast. I mean, I I remember on my shortwave radio, particularly with hockey, and hockey was very big where I grew up in Brooklyn. We had roller hockey leagues. Uh, As it turns out, my son played hockey and ended up playing for a club team at at NYU, and my brother Al, who ended up doing the Denver Nuggets and Indiana Pacers and gets nets briefly in New York, Uh, but he was a hockey nut, and he would travel and it's hard to find ice time in Brooklyn, but he would travel an hour several times a week, and he became a very good skater, became a goaltender, played in college, and then actually made a minor league team. Uh, The Toledo Blades now, I believe they they are. He was the backup goaltender and got in once in a while, and when his goals against average went up to 16.21, he decided perhaps broadcasting – was the better the the better way to go, and he did. He ended up, you know, doing hockey and basketball.
1: You, um, I read somewhere that at, there was one game where you, Al, and Steve were all doing a broadcast. Uh, I think it was at the Garden, where USA Network was involved. The Nets, it was a Knicks Nets yes, game at yeah. the Garden. All in the family, right there.
2: It was kind of annoying, actually.
1: <laughs>
2: but yes, they were they were there. Uh, Al Al was doing uh, the early. National uh, cable national package was on USA Network, and he and Hubie Brown uh did the games. And uh Steve, I forgot which team Steve he may have been doing the Nets at the time, and mm-hmm. I, I probably I, well I was doing the Knicks. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that's happened. It's happened many times where I would do a national game either NBC or or Turner, and either Al or Steve were doing the game. Now it's exclusive with TNT, so it doesn't happen. But. uh yeah, we, that happened quite a few times, yeah, and with my son Kenny, too, mm-hmm. that's happened.
1: I was, um, at my radio show, I was talking to Sean Waynes recently, and uh, his family, all comedians, Keenan Ivory Waynes, and they're all, and he was just telling me, like, you know, when one does it, yeah. we all kind of follow suit. Do you, with with a family of broadcasters, is it, does everyone kind of chart their own path, or is there a, a common thread where one does something and, and you guys kind of follow the, the leader in some ways? Well... It it really
2: became a situation where they saw what I was doing and boy this is this is fun. And and uh when I first started out in New York radio on WHN, which is now WFAN, uh moved down the dial to WNBC and the WFAN, uh Al worked as an intern for me, uh when he was in college and when I was first starting out. And then Steve did, did the same. But I we never thought that I I knew Al would go into it. Uh, never thought Steve would. I thought he'd be a puppeteer traveling the country. But uh, he also took to it and became, you know, very good at it. And, uh, it, hey, it's a great way, as you know, it's a great way to make a living. You're, you're having fun and you're around, for the most part, terrific people. And it's uh, something you have to really have the passion for it. And I can recall telling my third grade teacher, Mrs. Lepowski, when we had a right the usual paper, what do you want to be when you grow up, that I, I would like to be a broadcaster for the Knicks and the Rangers. I, I mean, network I'd ever thought about and would like to write a column for the New York Times. So mm. it was two out of three that did work out, fortunately. So. <laughs> Pretty
1: good. Most people don't get two out of three yeah, with so in their, their third, third grade. Uh, um, you know, you were in New York when Phil Jackson was was playing there uh, early on. When, when you were around Phil at that time, did you get any sense then – either through just his mind or how he operated that, you know, we might be seeing what could eventually become a historically great coach and now an executive.
2: I don't think anyone saw it. We, we, it was a different fill in many ways at, at that time. And he was a solid player. He was one of these guys similar as a player, similar to Bill Cartwright who would hurt his own players in practice because he had the sharp elbows by accident. Mm-hmm. And, uh, would be very very physical, and Phil was a very good player off the bench. But as in terms of coaching, that was not something any of us saw. I, I thought he would end up perhaps as the movie critic for the Village Voice, or or uh, something more artsy, you know. But I think when he was injured, he actually on the sixty nine seventy Nick championship team did not play. He was, he was sidelined by injury. He sat with Red Holzman on the bench quite a bit. Also, w- got interested in photography through the next official photographer, George Kalinske. Mm-hmm. And uh, he and George put a book together because uh, Phil was taking photos along the baseline uh, during the playoffs. And that book is available, <laughs> Chris, if you'd like. I happen to have a copy, have a copy? at home. But uh, I think it was really... Uh, spending a lot of time with Red Holzman, and perhaps he wasn't really sure what he wanted to do, and then realized, "Hey, this is what I would like to do," and ended up in the CBA with the Albany Patroons. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember he'd come to the Garden, you know, on off nights when the Knicks were playing and Albany was was off, get the free meal at the press room, and then would you know come to the games, and then it started to e- evolve. That uh, this is what he was going to do. It took a little while, and then Jerry Krause hired him in Chicago as an assistant uh, under D- uh, Doug Collins.
1: You had talked about Steve Kerr and, and and the comparisons he might have to to a Red Auerbach and and what makes Steve Kerr successful. From watching Phil over the years as a coach, I mean the system worked. Having great players obviously certainly yes. helps. But but what was it that that made him a great coach? I always say that coaching superstars is not easy. If it was, a lot more people than like a handful would have rings uh, right now. What was it about Phil that that you saw made him such a great coach?
2: Well, I wasn't around him as a coach as much as I have been with, with Steve mm-hmm. or when I saw what Red Holzman or Red Auerbach did, but I, I, he handled the players extremely well, and as you mentioned, he had many superstars, and, and that's always tough. He would kind of... He was a bit more talkative in Los Angeles than he has been in New York as a general manager mm-hmm. the last three and a half, four years, but I always felt... From what I saw, and we did a lot of Laker games at the time when NBC had the package. He, if he was upset with a player or felt they should be doing something different, he would actually make his point through the newspapers. Mm-hmm. He, he, it was very calculated as to what he would, as to what he would say, and he might annoy Kobe and Shaq. But that's to me, that's the way uh, he would talk to him, and he was very direct. But I, I just think he handled things extremely well, um, and he had good people around him on the bench, um, and I think developed into, as you say, one of the great coaches of all
1: time. There was a, a you know, back in the day, there was a, a connectedness that you had to the players, like we talked about, being around them more, flying on the charts a, a closeness. Did you ever, I mean, how often, if at all, did you have guys, you know, coming up to you talking about how you portrayed them on the broadcast or, or you know, what you, your commentary was during a game?
2: Or being annoyed, you mean? Yes. About the comment- <laughs> yeah, that would have... It, it didn't happen too often and I always felt you had to be objective and of doing local doing the Knicks and the uh, the Nets you you had to say what was going on because if you didn't and things were really good they why why are people going to believe you when giving positive information I know that's not always the theory with teams outside of the big cities or outside of New York but I always felt it was very important if they're not playing well, you have to say that so-and-so is not playing well. I I rarely heard from players. One time or more than once where I would hear uh, from either managers or players who were upset was when I was doing the baseball pregame show on NBC, and um, it was kind of an edgy show, and there were uh, people who became upset. wouldn't go on the show, Mm -hmm. you know, so that that did occur. Mm -hmm. But from players, I I knew if they were upset but, you know, with when I'm doing when I was doing the Knicks in the early days, they were so good that they rarely played poorly. Uh, So I, you know, I never experienced that. In in later years, I I mean, I knew management was upset. That's one of the reasons that I'm not doing, you know, the Knicks at this at this point or uh, I mean, I wouldn't be doing them now anyway because uh, doing the TNT games is enough at, mm-hmm. at this stage, but the, Nick management uh, was affected, you know, by uh, let's say objectivity, and uh, even to the point when I was doing their TV, the, the 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 feeling was don't talk too much about the opposition team, which was r- ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I mean, focus on on the Knicks who were really bad at the time, also. So there's not much of a story there if you're just doing that particularly if Michael Jordan's coming in or you know with uh, Scotty Pippen of the Bulls or you know Hakeem Olajuwon is coming in with the Rockets or, wh- or whoever would be a bird in the Celtics so that that was uh difficult but I just kept on broadcasting the way I always I always did I mean in the days of uh Dave Chekets and uh, bob gutkowski prior to jim dolan there never that was never a problem
1: mm-hmm. the dolan family has owned the knicks uh for a long time how, how how different was your relationship with charles versus what it was with jim
2: uh Ch- you mean his father Charles? His father, yeah oh the, yeah well was... I, charles was was in the background but um I, I i don't think anybody really had a relationship but he was a i remember he was a very nice man and he was as it turns out very close with Marty Glickman because Charles Dolan started HBO mm-hmm. and Marty was one of the early people to work for HBO so uh, he but uh, Charles Dolan really was not hands on at, at Madison Square Garden I mean in terms of you know people who did the games but it was different when uh, Jim Dolan took over and it was quiet at the start and then you know he felt things had to be done a certain way and did not want to hear anything what he considered negative but what i would consider objective so that
1: you know Mm -hmm. there you have it he was very hands-on and still is very hands-on oh no question was it was it a shock in some ways going through all those years of not having that sort of hands-on from an ownership perspective to going to jim who really changed the culture and you could argue better or worse i mean most people would argue worse uh but you know was very hands-on there
2: well, yeah, I think that's been a problem. Mm. With uh, Forget about the broadcasting end, but I think it's a problem in terms of trades that have been forced upon general managers. And I, I thought, for example, when Donnie Walsh was with the Knicks, yeah. I thought he was on, on the right track. And uh, I know that Donnie was not particularly happy there when moves were not made or were made that were not his decisions rhymes and,
1: with Schmarmelo Schmanta. Oh, uh,
2: yeah, that, that would be, yeah, that would be one of them. I would see, I thought with Carmelo, uh, and I understand, obviously, you want to make as much money as you possibly can, but I, I thought he, with a contending team, even now, if he, any he, that may happen, would be terrific, coming off the bench as as instant offense if he'd accept that. And at this stage, he should and could win a championship in the NBA because he's a tremendous offensive player. But it has to be where it's 30 minutes, 25 minutes. doesn't have to worry about—and he can play defense. I mean, it's that you have to want to play defense, as you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, strictly as an explosive shooter, uh, he he would have a, a different finish to his career.
1: I felt this growing up in Boston, that there was a certain type of player that couldn't play in, in this town like Boston, that the, the pressure cooker that that sports market was. Some people just couldn't handle it. Um, in different sports, doesn't have to be basketball, but I saw example after example over the years of guys that didn't do it. When Did, did you see that with the Knicks, maybe guys that, that couldn't handle the teeth of a market like that with the, the, the number of outlets covering you, the tabloids, and, and just how... How vicious they could be at times when when you weren't playing well.
2: Yeah, some some of the the players, the ones who were on the on the Nick championship teams, I think loved the attention. You're talking about Walt Clyde Frazier, mm-hmm. uh, particularly Earl Monroe was a, a low key guy, but he he was terrific with the all the guys, with the Busher and Bradley and Willis Reed and. They they were, even before they became huge winners, they were always, it wasn't the same kind of press coverage that you have now, but they, I mean, they were the darlings of, of uh, New York sports and became pretty well known nationally also because it was such an attractive team and you see how these guys have done after basketball. But, yeah, I, I would think there are certain guys who probably – Uh, both in the NHL and the NBA, and you see it in baseball too, who, if things aren't going well and they get knocked, I think they are affected.
1: Can you believe it's been as long as it has? I mean, as somebody that covered the Knicks championship years, it's been as long as it has since the Knicks have won uh, an NBA championship.
2: Well, they had another shot against the Rockets in in the 90s, and, and, you know, certainly that was a good Rocket team, but those were the years that Michael was playing baseball, so... Chicago had a two year hiatus and then got right back to it when Jordan returned. But yeah, I i it, the organization has made bad moves, particularly in recent years when you you know, you, you look at playoffs or lack of thereof or getting to the second round and, and it's uh, it just shouldn't happen for that it should not be that kind of drought. Mm-hmm. Uh and and also it has to be a destination that other players want to come to and that is not the case right now i mean it's it's really not a good situation and i think it's difficult for this particular organization to correct that Mm -hmm. Uh, it could be could be a long time
1: yeah unfortunately you you had a a great job from when you took over the knicks and going through it when did you decide that that you wanted to go national that you wanted i mean the opportunity with nbc obviously came up when when did that sort of uh, become something you wanted
2: well, I was doing the 6 o'clock and 11 o'clock sports at Channel 4, uh, WNBC in New York, and I was asked if I would like to take a crack at boxing and college basketball, because they didn't have the NBA at the mm-hmm. time. So I started out doing uh, college basketball on Saturdays and would end up subbing for Dick Enberg if he had a conflict so I work with Al McGuire, which was... Terrific mm-hmm. that, that was he, he's one of the most unforgettable characters I've ever ever worked with, and then I ended up doing uh, boxing. Uh, Don Olmeyer was there before Dick Eprestol, so I started out with Don, who was the executive producer and then uh, Dick later on and it, it wasn't something I was looking to, although you know it was certainly on my mind hey that'd be that'd be great And I remember the first preseason NFL meeting. That all the announcers came to, and I'm sitting in the room in my first year with Kurt Gowdy, Dick Enberg, Charlie Jones. I'm looking around, us, I can't believe that I'm sitting here. And, you know, really, I, it really hit me then. And there were several other guys there too that you know I had grown up listening to when I was a
1: kid. Mm-hmm. So you know, the, those early years doing national—is it any? Was it any different for mm-hmm. you in terms of of I mean, difficulty in stepping into that role where you're outside of the Knicks sort of umbrella?
2: I think I, I changed my style a little bit, but I always f- have felt you have to have kind of a a, a, a light pr- a sense of humor, you know, along with it, which I was able to keep with the – it's important to me who I'm working with, and it has to be uh, – I always felt I'm more effective with guys who have a sense of humor mm-hmm. and get it or make fun of me, mm-hmm. you know, uh, also.
1: And um, – that's what made you and Fratello so good over the years. It Mike is like a the... is a
2: walking punching bag, which I <laughs> I enjoy. But it, but he's you know terrific in terms of being an analyst, and also is is very is very funny. And Steve Kerr too also has had a great sense of humor. And the other guys, I mean Reggie Miller and Chris Webber, etc. I've enjoyed working with, and Brent Barry, who uh, has a very low key sense of humor, mm-hmm. as you know. But uh, I think that when I first started out, it's when you do network, uh, if it's an NFL game, uh, it's different when you're broadcasting to a hometown audience because you take for granted they know a little bit more information about the players and also about tendencies, and it's different on the national level. I think you have to be, particularly when you're jumping from team to team uh, every Sunday or every Saturday, I think there are things you would say or anecdotes you'd use that you might not on a local broadcast of a Nick game or a Ranger game
1: how long does it take you and you've had a lot of broadcast partners over the years how long does it take you to develop chemistry with a broadcast partner
2: some right away mm-hmm. uh, it, it you know and it's sometimes in the off time you know that that contributes uh, to it and sometimes it takes a little while to you really get to know each other uh, particularly with humor, because it really, it can be someone who might not get it, you know, at times, or maybe I don't get it, you know, by trying to have them get it. So you you, you kind of feel your way through it. Mm-hmm. I mean, not to say, you know, this is a comedy show, but I think it's important to, um, and if you make a mistake, to be able to to kind of make light of it you know I, I I do I remember working with uh Bill Parcells who that, that was a great experience I worked NBC NFL games with Bill and um he would always say if if the producer would come up with some kind of uh graphic where it would be of humor perhaps at the cost of Bill he would always say what what is this uh Milton burl we're doing here you know so you know he'd have this Uh, he'd have a reference to someone of the fifties usually, but Bill was very funny Mm -hmm. and I got, it was great getting to know him because his knowledge in other sports, we used to play NBA initials all the time and he was really good. I must, he prepared for it too. Mm -hmm. You know, we'd go to the practice on a Friday or Saturday morning and he would, he'd be prepared with obscure names and he'd be very annoyed if I or, Anybody else on the crew would, would come up with the correct
1: answer. I always think it's. um, I mean, and I've been lucky growing up in the Northeast, and now, you know, watching national basketball uh, locally. I thought Mike, think Mike Gorman's one of the very best doing it right now. Been doing it for three plus decades. Uh, Mike Breen here in New York, and I've joked with them in the past about uh, their signature, you know, lines or you know. Two words, tops. I mean, Mike Gorman says, got it, and that's his. And Breen is bang, and you, for you, just the, the yes. I mean, I know you've told this story before, but the advent of yes becoming your your kind of uh, catch line there. It
2: was, it was accidental that when I'd be playing ball in the schoolyards of Brooklyn, a friend of mine uh, from high school, there'd always be a guy who's doing play-by-play as you're playing three-on-three. It wasn't me. I was, I was kind of shy. So he would actually do the play-by-play as we're playing, and there was a referee by the name of Sid Borgia. In fact, his son, Joe, is now the supervisor of officials for the NBA. Yes. But Sid was a very colorful referee and would go, yes, and it counts if a guy would, like, bank at home and would be fouled So in the act so he'd go to the line for uh, a free throw. And my friend would always go, yes, on shots in the schoolyard. And for some reason... I, I and I remember the game. It happened. It was a uh, Knicks Philadelphia game at the Garden. Dick Barnett hit a fallback baby, one of his specialties, jump shot that banked home, and I happened to say yes. And then I just started to use it once in a while, and I, I saw it was being repeated back to me by by fans or by players. So that's how it started. But the players would always, you know, even in practice, the. If I'm there, or even if I'm not, I, I I'm told they you know they do that all the time. So
1: so you're you're a shy kid. How do you get over the 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 shy kid part of it? Because you can't be shy as a broadcaster. When does that change for you?
2: It, it's probably it's like uh, it's a, a way of shedding the shyness, mm-hmm. you know, releasing it so to speak. And uh, I always didn't have problems talking into a tape recorder. You know, I mm-hmm. bring a tape recorder to. Uh, Games at the garden when I was ball boy, I was able to uh, for a college game. I would work it out to be able to sit in that broadcast perch and and do games. I, I also, as a kid, I worked for the Brooklyn Dodgers mm-hmm. in the ticket office as a summer job, and uh, one of the advantages of that, were two tickets in the uh, overhang, which was right next to the Dodger radio broadcast booth, it was the year before they moved. To LA. So he had Vince Scully there and Connie Desmond. And I, in fact, I'd go to the booth to pick up their commercials a- after they had left so I could use them on my fictitious radio station, WMPA, for my, my initials. So I, I, I did, you know, I was doing baseball games and annoying people in the booth who I was, it was usually Walter O'Malley family. So they actually moved me down the right field line, which I, I accepted very gracefully. I mean, I understood because I would always bring a friend or one of my brothers to do color. So uh, it probably came out in terms of the shyness by, uh, you know, doing stuff like that and uh, being able to uh, uh, broadcast into my tape recorder. And then eventually, when I was at uh, Syracuse University, there were no sports announcing jobs available. But the great thing about Syracuse is that many of us were able to get jobs within the city on regular stations, so I did do the Syracuse Chiefs for for a year as the uh, second person on the broadcast, and I had to start out by doing something, so I was a, a rock and roll disc jockey, which was, I, I had a great time with that.
1: Did you get close to those Knicks players in the day? I mean, how, how friendly were you with some of those guys?
2: Well, because we traveled with right. them, Chris. We You know, you'd sit with them on the plane. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I mean after games they're tired and going to sleep. Mm-hmm. But uh yeah, you talk a lot to Bill Bradley or to, I was particularly friendly with Dave Deboscher. Uh and Willis and Clyde and Dick Barnett Mike Mike Reardon who was a guy who came off the bench played in your up uh, played up in Providence, right? Mm-hmm. Mike think. Reardon, yeah. Yeah. So, uh yeah, you you would talk to the players quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh even even in recent years uh I found when I traveled, I did the Nets for four or five years, and uh, we'd be on the plane, and uh, I would end up talking to guys. You know, mm-hmm. they'd sit down. they had more questions for me about various games, and particularly the Jordan era, because mm-hmm. they were watching at that at that time, and that was that was a joy uh, when NBC was doing the games because of the. I mean, now it's great in different ways because we spent a lot of time out in the Bay Area because of Golden State, you know, or in Cleveland because we're we're doing usually the top teams. But uh, we did so much Chicago and also doing the Olympics, doing the Dream Team Mm -hmm. was great. was a thrill and guys always ask about that because that was for many players in the NBA that was uh, their first memory mm-hmm. of watching basketball
1: it's got to I mean it's got to be so much different traveling on the planes in the 60s and 70s versus now not just because of the uh, the type of plane you're traveling on, but you know what these guys were doing nowadays. It's like they're, mean, they're, they're like fine-tuned machines. Right. Whereas, I mean, I can remember even back in the day watching Dino Raja light up cigarettes in the, in the yeah. garden hallways. Right. I'm sure right. that happened. You know, with the drinking and smoking, and just you know, just a casual way so I of life. To think, guys, there weren't many guys uh,
2: on on those Nick teams that I recall smoking.
1: You know, I, I I'm European guys tend to do that. The, more the than European the, guys, uh, yeah. well, Vladi,
2: Divac, yeah. et etc. <laughs> but uh, as you say, Dino, Roger. But uh, yeah, I mean, on the buses they'd be drinking beer. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no question, and um, still do, I would think. Yeah, right. But the difference also is you were traveling commercial in the 70s for the most part, and uh, there were only so many first class seats, mm-hmm. so the young players or the rookies would sit. In the back, as we as we would, mm-hmm. and now it's you know now it's a different story. If be as you say, be it charters or uh, with doing one or two games a week with uh, TNT. I'm I'm on my own, so mm-hmm. that's okay. So uh, you know you're gonna be first class all the time. Anyway. So
1: you had a bird's eye view of of Jordan in those days, and and the subject of of the comparisons come up to Jordan's teams and what we have with Golden State right now. Given what you know. What's your position on, you know, let's let's say that 72-win Jordan team versus the one we just saw storm through the finals uh, against the Cavs? It, it, it's
2: so, not to duck it, but it's so hard to compare because the rules were different. It's much looser now. It's been made, the game has changed to be more offensively geared, which I think is good. Uh, you did not have the three-point shooting excellence that you have now. It's tough to play hard-nosed defense now. And uh, in Jordan's era, you know, it was hand-checking and uh, fouls were called more frequently in terms of, uh, you know, the contact that was being made. If Jordan played now, he would uh, definitely adapt. If LeBron played in those days, he would adapt. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's very – it's it's hard to – to go against what Michael did, mm-hmm. uh, just because of his demeanor and his uh, desire to win. Not that LeBron or Kevin Durant or Steph Curry don't have a desire to win, but he was at another level when it, when it, it came to that. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that the Chicago, to me that Chicago team still feels like it would be the best if you brought them into this era. And would be a wonderful series against Golden State.
1: I think it's now, the only. I think it's the only comparable mark because I remember looking at the Lakers' numbers from '87. You mentioned the three-point shot; they averaged five attempts per game. This Golden State team averaged thirty-one. Oh, it's, look at <laughs> it's Houston! Like, it's, uh,
2: it's it's completely even bad teams just fire away because the mathematics are you're better off uh, going for the three. Uh, you know, for the misses you're going to have from from three-point territory as opposed to missing uh, the two. I've always felt also, I mean, there were a lot of plays even in the 50s and the 60s. If they went through the same kind of conditioning and the same type of, you know, growing up through what has taken place in basketball now, they could play, like Mm -hmm. Bob Cousy could play today. I mean, smaller guys because the league has expanded and uh, you, you have to be pretty nifty. I mean, like an Isaiah the current Isaiah Thomas mm-hmm. and the previous Isaiah Thomas, you know, both incredible. But uh, you see smaller players doing well now. And guys like Kuzi and Sharman would have, I, I think, would w- would have been all-star players if they came along at this time in terms of conditioning. Uh, same with the Heinsohn and people like that mm-hmm. from you know, the old Celtic teams.
1: I love being around Tommy in Boston. Oh, he's, he's, he's great. He's yeah. unreal. He just yeah. has no filter. No. Just sitting there. <laughs> I tell Mike Gorman all the time you guys are the only tandem that can basically have a production meeting on the air. Like, you can sit That's there true. because Tommy That's will just. Good. There was a, a, a Nuggets game. Yeah. Where Tommy couldn't figure out which one was Jokic and which one was Nurkic, <laughs> so he's asking Mike on the yeah. air. He's like, "Is that yeah. the he's, the Nurkic guy? Is that joke? <laughs> like he's they, probably not alone. It's, in, it's in that he.
2: Oh, he would have been. He would have had. But a most good guys time. would be embarrassed, right? Most guys would be like, "Which right. one, Which
1: one's that? Which right. which was it?" Tommy's he, just like, "Whatever." He would have uh, had a nice time at the Olympics. Yeah, was, yeah, with I, some of the. Uh, some of the teams that we we did. I can't believe Tommy was a national broadcaster in the '80s when Boston was playing in the finals. I mean, I don't really remember much about. He, po- about he wasn't.
2: It wasn't a situation, as I recall, that he you know every foul against the
1: Celtics no. would be an argument. No, no, he he didn't do that. No, he's no. That he was very good. Yeah, yeah, that's different. Uh, do you miss the nowadays guys don't hate each other? Uh, everybody's friends. They're all like texting each other after games. We've heard the story about players. Golden State players. Like, yeah. yeah, players doing that. Do you miss the disdain that players (laughs) from the 70s and 80s and 90s showed to their opponents? Because nowadays, it's gone. It's probably not coming back.
2: Do I miss the disdain?
1: Uh, I kind of do. I kind of wish that there was more... Like, I remember, like, I just love (laughs) even watching the Paul Pierce of the world walk out to center court, stand there, not tap hands with anybody. You know, KG watching him. Like, you just... I like the mortal enemy. You know, I,
2: I, I agree with you. Even though they say it with a smile that magic hated Larry Bird and the Celtics, although he loves him. And Larry f- said the same thing about magic, but still the competitive aspect of that w- was terrific. And you did have, as as you look back, be it a, a, an Xavier McDaniel or an Anthony Mason, you know, with that, or the Bernard King look, the stare, uh, the game face, you don't see that frequently. And yeah, I would. I've never thought about that. That's a good question. Mm -hmm. But yes, I do. Well, I mean, I I do. You know, people, I think people got excited when they saw LeBron and Durant, who are really friendly with each other, you know, go at each other in terms of just a discussion. That, Mm -hmm. that, if you say that would be going at each other, you know. But they had to put a stop to it because uh, I think what the league did, starting with David Stern and continuing with Adam Silver, the reason that, and I know old-timers complain about some of the technicals and some of the flagrants that are called because they do not want it to lead to worse. Mm -hmm. And they think of the Detroit, Indiana incident. And that's what the fear is, particularly in basketball, because there's no protection. And if someone punches someone, as we did see one time by accident in the Kermit Washington, Rudy T. incident, it can be Really, really awful. That's I read so, the
1: book on that. It was I think it was called The Punch. Terrific um, book. Yeah. Yes. I mean, just reading about you know Rudy T f- tasting spinal fluid. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that was. Ooh, you're right. That. But that, I think
2: that's that's by design, and probably why we don't see as much disdain because mm-hmm. there aren't these explosions allowed to occur that stop mm-hmm. because you're going to be thrown out of the game. You're going to be fined, suspended. And uh, as we saw even in uh, vital-type situations where, uh, I mean, Draymond Green, that, that may have may have cost them the series mm-hmm. last year because how, of the flagrant fouls.
1: How, uh, I mean, speaking of the physicality and the toughness, those 90s Knicks teams, I mean, how mean and tough were they by comparison to other teams you've seen?
2: It's interesting to see Pat Riley, who also is one of the great coaches of all time, was able to go from finesse to
1: Powerball by
2: using yeah. – right, Powerball would capture it by, by using with what he had. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, they were very mean, very tough. They were met by toughness, too, and you remember series with Miami. But if you were a Nick fan, you love them. Uh, and I know there are people around the NBA who like a tough style of basketball, really enjoyed it, but there were a lot of low-scoring games – there were games that you know, i'm sure nick fans enjoyed it but they were grind out type type games that was very good te- those were very good teams mm-hmm. also but the style was different and the rules were different so mm-hmm. uh they could get away with that now now they these guys would be Suspended, hit by technicals left and right. You know, you, you couldn't do that now.
1: Bums you know. me out to see the bad relationship that Oakley has with the Knicks now, just because of you know the heart and soul that he was. It is in a shame. Those yes, it, it,
2: it is. And uh, he was such a popular player too amongst his teammates. Fans loved him because of the way way he played so so fiercely. Uh, Michael Jordan was actually upset with the trade initially because he was. He still is very friendly with Charles. And he was kind of the protector of Michael in those wild games with Detroit when the Pistons were the the, the true bad boys. And the trade was Oakley for Cartwright. Turned out Cartwright was the right piece for for the Bulls Mm -hmm. because of his defense and the way, you know, setting screens, and he can also shoot. So it turned out to be a good trade for both clubs.
1: He was the ultimate NBA bodyguard, first for Michael, then for Patrick (laughs) Ewing out there. Ewing, by the way— is it surprise you that Patrick hasn't gotten a coaching opportunity?
2: I, I thought he would and, and has certainly put the time in mm-hmm. uh, as an assistant. And I know Jeff Van Gundy loves him. Doug Collins did. They they hired him. And it, it's really nice to see that he's getting a shot. It's tough, though, at, at Georgetown because you know, it's different, a little different in terms of recruiting now, in terms of the, the academic standards. But I think he'll eventually – do well. Players will respect him. They know who he is. And, uh, you know, I think he's learned on the job.
1: Feels like there's an NBA stigma against big men, though, because Patrick is a top 50 player. You know, not a guy being handed something. He paid his dues. You know, he was an assistant coach for more than a decade with with various teams and various good coaches. I
2: think it's similar to in baseball, where star players uh, usually don't want to manage. They don't want to go through that. But you rarely see a star player Uh, managing. Sometimes, or maybe many times because of their own choice. In the NBA, you don't see that many star players come to think of it. Uh, Larry Bird was an exception. You have very good players who are became coaches, but uh, not that many star players. Patrick might be, I'm trying to think, who else would be in that category when you say top 50, who then went on to, well, Magic did, but he saw it wasn't for him. He came
1: on cup of coffee. Yeah, yeah, right. And he and he
2: didn't want to deal with that particular team.
1: Mm-hmm. So, still enjoying the all this, the, the travel, the the job, all of it. I know you were at the Olympics uh, recently, doing that for for NBC. All of it's still fun for you. I I, I love it. Mm-hmm. I, I,
2: I really do. It's I still get excited about games. I enjoy the preparation uh, for the games, and uh, even enjoy doing the boxing for NBC, mm-hmm. which we did about eight shows. That that was a flashback for me because we did so many at NBC in the uh, 80s and uh, and 90s, mm-hmm. and that's as you know that's kind of a, a fun sport to do because the boxers love to talk. Such
1: they, characters they are. They yeah.
2: all have great backstories, and the big moment for them is to is I mean talk about the up and coming boxers, is to get on television. Mm-hmm. So they're ready to ready to talk, and they they're very very colorful. So that's. That's a lot of fun. Do
1: you have any experiences with the, you know, some of the '80s greats, the the Tyson's or the even Ali towards the very end?
2: I, I did a number of interviews with mm-hmm. Muhammad Ali. Uh, I never did. I, I came after him in terms of right. uh, telecasting fights. I, I I never did a Tyson fight. My my brother uh, Steve did many of many of the fights uh, that uh, Showtime did with Tyson, but we were the era of Larry Holmes. He actually was a very good heavyweight at a time. There was nobody really to compete with him and was not that interesting to watch. Mm-hmm. I did some of Jerry Cooney's fights, but we did a lot of the good middleweight fights. Marvin Hagler, oh, yeah. Sugar Ray, Thomas Hearns, mm-hmm. Spinks, Michael Spinks. We did a lot of those. The John the Beast Mugabe, if that name rings a bell at mm-hmm. all. So that was, uh, uh, that was basically the, the era that we did. And uh, Had a lot of good fights in in
1: the eighties. Oh, the Four Kings era of those guys. Yeah, from yeah. Those those middleweights. So oh, I saw Hagler recently. He's like living in Italy and just hanging out. Do,
2: I I heard he was doing spaghetti westerns <laughs> at <laughs> one
1: like that. One point, he was dressed. He was dressed to the nines like he was yeah, you know a, some old time gangster. Good. Oh, really? Yeah, he yeah, looked. He looked. Yeah. He was at the Garden for a Celtic game, and uh, it's uh, always funny to ask him about like you know how would you. He, he sort of just sort of sneers when you ask about like t- today's greats, like Mayweathers of the world. Like, I'm yeah. like, come on, you don't want to put that guy in the ring with me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. God could take him down. So, well, Marv, uh, this has been great, man. I could do this for two hours. I, I really appreciate you coming in studio. Been looking forward to this, and uh, thanks for doing it. Chris, really-
2: a pleasure. Thank you very much. Anytime, if we can figure it out, <laughs>
1: <laughs> we can make it work. That's it for this week's episode. My thanks to Marv Albert for joining the show. As always, you can download archived episodes on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, really anywhere you can download podcasts. While you're there, post a comment, leave a rating. You know I appreciate it. And I'll see you next week.
0: Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste, the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds, it was shocking. I have to know what were they thinking.